Mark chapter 2. Last week, I asked you a question during the course of our sermon. We were talking, you'll remember, about the issue of prayer last week. And we talked about that portion of the prayer where Jesus uh, says to us, lead us not into temptation. He gives us this, this, this directive, pray like this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And I mentioned to you last week a question that I think is rather important. That question is this, why doesn't God just remove all temptation when we come to salvation? Why does he leave temptation and sin in the lives of believers? Well, let me ask you, did you just let that go, or did you wrestle with it this week? Did you think about that at all? Did you take it before the teacher and say, yeah, why? Why is it? Why is it that you allow this to continually work in our lives? I think there are dozens of profound reasons why that's the case. Let me just toss out a few of them to you. And each one of these is a sermon in their own right. But why does temptation reside within us after we've become Christians? Why do we have to keep wrestling against this sin nature that is within us? Well, temptation does a number of things. It keeps us humble. Have you noticed that? Very difficult to be judgmental with others when we ourselves are still facing the same sins and temptation. When we keep tripping up and falling, Temptation requires our perpetual dependence on God. You will never have reached perfection in this life by your own standards. Amen? Temptation has us continually revisit the beauty of God's grace, reminding us what we've been saved from. Temptation makes us prone to bestow grace on others. Temptation keeps us from putting confidence in the flesh. I can't value and believe that this is going to ever save me. Temptation reminds us that this isn't our home. Amen? Temptation keeps us battle-hardened against sin. We're stuck in the fight, and as we fight day after day, we are strengthened spiritually. It's not a one-time and then we're done thing. It is an everyday thing. Until we die, we wrestle against that sin. It keeps us strong. It also gives us sort of this brother-in-arms feel toward one another. We're all still fighting the good fight together. Temptation does a number of things for us, but one of the most profound things it does for us is it gives us the opportunity to confess. Confession is what we're going to speak about today. It's one of these aspects of church life that most of us think we've got a really good handle on, but I think many of us misunderstand. We don't know it, or at least we don't know it in its, enti- in its entirety. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But what happens when we do fall again? What happens when we have gone directly into temptation? What happens when we don't just experience temptation, but when we sin. There's this word in the Christian context called penance. Everyone say penance. When I say the word penance, what do you think of? Think of Catholicism, right? You you think of like these medieval monks with like these flails, like hitting themselves in the back, or maybe Monty Python style, right? Taking the board and hitting themselves in the head over and over again. And it has sort of this feel to it, it, the, the feel of of sort of sorrow for sins, but then beyond sorrow for sins, kind of this connotation of of destruction of self or punishing oneself. And while that's present in penance, while that idea is present in penance, that's not the core of what penance means. Penance is recognizing sin and then figuring out what to do about it. Penance is recognizing sin and figuring out what to do about it. Um, I would describe it this way. It's spiritual course correction. 
Spiritual course correction. I'm going the wrong way. What am I doing to get back on track? Thomas Aquinas, one of the great Christian thinkers of ages past, said this about this spiritual course correction, about penance. He said this, there are three conditions necessary for penance. Number one is contrition, which means sorrow for sin, together with a purpose of amendment. It's not just that I feel bad about what I've done, but I want it to change. I want it to be different. And then there's, he said, confession of sins is the second condition. So it's not just that I feel bad, but I've got to let God know. And he says, confession of sins without any omission. In other words, I tell it to God just as it is. Then he says, satisfaction by means of good works. And many Protestants balk at that a little bit. We go, ah, we cannot make up for sin by doing good works. That's not what Aquinas is saying here. He's saying, in other words, I don't just say I'm sorry. I don't just confess my sins, but I change. And that's necessary in order for real confession, real repentance to take place. That's what it looks like to engage in godly penance. Now, most of us feel sorrow for sins, right? You do something wrong, you feel bad about it. Amen? Okay, so we're okay as far as that goes, and, and most of us will go to God with confession. We'll actually move past just feeling bad about our sins, and we'll say to God, Lord, I have done wrong, or Lord, I'm sorry, or Lord, I apologize, but there is some sort of confession. But this is where the wheels fall off for most Christians. What happens when we've done that, but then we go right back to the same sin, and go back to the same sin? and go back to the same sin. And the cycle just keeps repeating itself. Could it be the case that we've actually missed out on what godly confession looks like, on what actual penance is? I think it is. Because the Bible does not paint just the picture of confessing to God as confession. There's more to it than that. How many of you read my article in the newsletter this past week, by show of hands? Uh, like five, six people? Okay. If you didn't realize it, I write an article every week in the newsletter. It's a preview of the sermon. Usually it'll give you something to think about for the sermon or some, something that ties into the sermon during the week. This past week, I was pleased to hear a couple of you at least ask me the question, so what does that have to do with confession? Mark chapter 2, 1 through 5. I pointed out that there's an oddity in this passage, and I didn't tell you what it is. I just told you to look at it. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. This is a familiar story. When Jesus came back to Capernaum a few days later, it was heard that he was at a home, and many were gathered together so that there was no longer space, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And some people came bringing him a man who was paralyzed, carried by four men. And when they were unable to get to him, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. After digging an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralyzed man was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralyzed man, your son, or, your, son, your sins are forgiven. Let me read verse 5 again. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. One more time. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Notice some pronoun issues going on here. How is it that the faith of the community, how is it that the faith of those who bring the paralyzed man is calculated into the forgiveness of this man's sins? And not just the forgiveness of his sins, but his healing. This man is healed. And the faith is credited not just to the man, but to the men who carried the man. What does that have to do with confession? I guess we're going to have to wait till later in the sermon to find out. We're going to talk about confession today, and we're going to dig very deeply into this topic. Before we do, though, 
let's see how you did with your scripture memory this past week. By the way, first service, you blew out second service in terms of your memory verse last week. See if you can do it again. I, I feel like we're doing a VBS thing here. Like, <laughs> like take a, those guys from second service aren't going to beat us. All right. Regarding fellowship, here we go. It's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. And let us consider how to encourage one another in love and good deeds, not forsaking our own meeting together, as is the habit of some people, but encouraging one another and all the, as you, the... Hey, good job, good job, good job, good job. Um, doing it well, all right? We've, we've only got like one more week on this, so next week try to have the whole thing just like set and ready to go. The important thing is that this is ingrained in our head, right? The idea that this, this is not an optional meeting. The church is called to gather. It's one of the things that we just do because God commanded it. Let's talk about confession. Here's what we're going to do. I want to open up with a word of prayer, but let me tell you where we're going first. First of all, we're going to deal with the issue of what confession is. That's going to be the bulk of our sermon time today because there's a lot theologically here. Then secondarily, I want to talk about what life looks like without confession. And this will be all too familiar to most of us in this room. Thirdly, I want to talk about the beauty of confession and what it does for the church. Okay? Let's go to our master in prayer. Our Lord and God, Thank you so much for your design of the church, that you created it in such a way to maximize who we are as human beings, to make us everything you have called us to be. Father, I pray that we would not neglect any aspect of that, no matter how uncomfortable it makes us. Lord, today is a difficult, I think, topic for many of us because we are fiercely independent people. And most of us feel like we need to contend with our sin ourselves. God, remind us of who you are and remind us of who we are and that sometimes paralyzed people need to be carried. Lord, we love you. Be with us today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's start by talking about what confession isn't. All right, and, and just because we've got a lot of bad ideas about what goes on here. Confession is not sitting in a box and talking to someone behind a curtain. If you were raised as a Roman Catholic or were part of the Roman Catholic Church, as soon as I say confession, you immediately think of the confessionals, those boxes, right, where you go sit and you talk to somebody on the other side of a little veil or a little screen, and you let them know what you did, and then they tell you, pray this, this many times, and everything will be set. That is not what confession is. And by the way, confession is not the province of Roman Catholics. Many in the, in the Protestant churches have kind of let confession go. In fact, I, I think it was uh, Tyndale, actually, one of the early reformers, who said of confession, he's like, look, there's no reason that one person should confess to one other person in the New Testament. Tyndale's wrong about that. He's mistaken. But the reason he was saying what he was saying was because he was reacting to the Catholic Church saying, your sins cannot be forgiven unless you do this particular thing. Tyndale's saying that's not the case. The problem then is many of us in, in Protestant movements have gone to the opposite end of the spectrum and we don't confess to anyone ever our sins. Or if we do, here's what we think of. Confession is an opportunity to brag about how bad I've been. 
So when I think of confession as a Protestant, my general conception is this. It's somebody who gets up in front of the church and trots out all of their garbage and shows me what they used to be and what they've, they've come to be. So, the, you know, they had a heroin addiction or, or you know, they, they were, had a gambling problem or they were a Satanist, you know, whatever it is. It's one of those things you look at, and as a normal Christian, you might be thinking, man, i got to work on my sin resume. These guys are doing great, and I... I'm just over here dealing with, you know, a lust issue or, or lying or deceiving or gossip or something. That guy had a heroin addiction. I remember uh, I was watching a video once of a, a woman who's a prominent uh, Christian speaker. I'm not going to mention her by name, but she was up in front of a massive crowd. And she began to share her story. And she, she shared that uh, at one stage in her life, she had had intimate relations with the entire university football team at the university she attended in a single weekend. And they panned to her husband, and the guy's just sitting there with this smile that was saying, ouch. And I thought, what are you doing? Is this what confession is meant to be? Because that seems hurtful and maybe dangerous even. So confession is not sitting in a box and talking to someone behind a curtain. Confession is not necessarily an opportunity to just jump up in front of people and talk about how bad you were. Confession is not a therapy session. Now, don't get me wrong here. Confession is therapeutic. It is healing when done the right way that God commanded us to, to do it, but it is not merely therapy. Something special happens when we confess our sins that is different than simply talking to a group of people and getting it out. Confession is not equitable with secular venting. Anyone ever tell you that they need to vent? I hate that. It's not just because you're hearing certain things from people, but because many Christians use it as an excuse to gossip or to justify themselves or to make others look bad. Sometimes confession forms that exact paradigm for people. So confession is not gossip. It's not gossip disguised as something spiritual. Confession is not blaming people or circumstances or constructing defenses for your own bad behavior. Confession is also not an optional spiritual practice. It's not optional. Confession, many times, and I'll, 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 let you, I'll confess. For me, here's, here's the way I tend to deal with my own sin. Here's what I do. I go, I'll deal with this on my own. I don't need to talk to anybody about it. I'll, I'll contend with this with myself. Nobody else, I don't want to burden anybody else with my problems. And I think about confession as that thing like where I, I, confession is for really bad people. I mean, like, really bad people. I'm only slightly evil, right? So there are some people who need it, right? They, they need to confess. They've got to talk to somebody about what they're doing wrong, but not me. I mean, I'll handle it myself, and then after I've got this sin mastered and squared away, then I'll talk about it. Does that sound familiar? Is this how you deal with it in your own hearts and minds? Well, let's talk about the premise of confession. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. The premise of confession. Confession is God's plan. Let's say that together. Confession is God's plan. It's his perfect plan. Do you remember in the garden when Adam first sinned, he was presented an opportunity? God shows up in the garden. You remember, where is Adam when God showed up after he sinned? Hiding. They're hiding. They're hiding from God. And God shows up and he says, where are you, O oh man? And it's not that God didn't know, but he's asking Adam, assess yourself. Where are you right now? What are you doing right now? 
And then he says, what have you done? And is Adam's response confession? Adam's response is blame immediately. He was offered offered the opportunity to confess, and instead he begins turning guilt on other people. It's this person's fault, and and Eve turns the guilt on on the the serpent, right? It it goes after the serpent. She goes after the serpent. It's your serpent's fault that you put here in the garden. God's plan for us is confession. It's not his recommendation for us. It's his plan for every believer. Here's the idea. Burdens and failures that we experience, sin and falling short, all of these things are to be shared so that they might be borne by a community and restoration and redirection is the goal. It's to fix things. Galatians chapter 6, 1 through 3. Brothers and sisters, even if a person is caught in any wrongdoing, now when you see even, realize We're talking about, I could bring my wrongdoing to you, or you can catch me in it. But one way or another, the wrongdoing is found out. Even if a person is caught in wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, underline that in your Bibles. You who are spiritual. Would you like God to identify you as spiritual? Okay, then this should identify you. You who are spiritual are to restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking uh, to yourself so that you are not tempted as well. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Do you see the picture that's being set up here? If you're a spiritual person, if you are a godly person full of the Holy Spirit, then when someone has sinned, you should be one of those who shuffles alongside them and bears them up and carries them just as a paralyzed man to the master. That's the way it is supposed to work within the church. Now, I want to point out here that you are responsible for your own confession. Nobody can make you earnestly confess. We can catch you in your sin, but we cannot make you confess in your sins. God has laid out a protocol then for what happens when we confess. Let's look at what that protocol is. The practice of confession. There are three different versions of confession that we see within the scriptures. Three different versions. We tend to practice the first, and we ignore the rest. Three different versions of confession. Confession, the first version of confession, which arguably is the most important, is confession to God. Without confession to God, you're going nowhere in your spiritual life. Confession to God. And here's what confession to God looks like. First of all, it's a call for divine clarity. When's the last time you went to God and said, show me where I have sinned? Do you do that? Most of us don't. Most of us wait until it's glaringly obvious, and sometimes we even avoid it at that point. But how often do you go to the Lord and say, peel back the layers here, Remove the scales from my eyes. I need to know where I'm deceiving myself. Show me where I'm sinning. Invoking the Holy Spirit. What's the first word there? Invoking the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is there to keep us holy. Holy Spirit, show me how I might be made right. Show me where I go wrong. So we're calling for divine clarity. Proverbs 21 verse 2 says this. The way of a man is right in his own eyes. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but God judges the heart. In other words, you will perpetually be able to deceive yourself regarding your own sin unless you invoke the Holy Spirit. God, show me where I'm going wrong. You see where I'm going wrong. Reveal it. So it's called for divine clarity. Secondly, it's owning your own wrongdoing. Be specific, be concrete, be particular when it comes to your own sins. 
we, we have people sometimes say things like this. I have trouble being truthful. When what they really ought to be saying is, I lied to my boss this week, right? I have trouble, we, we sanitize it. We make it soft so that it doesn't hurt or reflect badly on us. I have problems with truth or I have problems controlling my mind. This is one of my favorite, favorites in working with youth ministry. Anytime a young man came to me and said, I have problems controlling my mind, I went, lust issues and probably pornography, right? Like, let's just be clear about what's going on. Confession should be direct. It should say exactly what has been done wrong. Confession cannot contain excuses or explanation. Here's the difference between confession and getting caught in a sin. I found that usually when we've got to do a church discipline issue because someone has been caught in sin, when I sit down to have a conversation with that person, they usually don't come clean and own up to the sin. You know what they do? They explain why they did it. They explain all the circumstances that led them to make that decision. That isn't confession. That isn't confession. That's exactly what Adam does in the garden, right? Confession is owning the sin and saying, this is mine. And it's not, I apologize or I'm sorry. Parents, have you heard the phrase, I'm sorry, and not not really heard, I'm sorry? They say, I'm sorry, but what they mean is, just give me my phone back or just, you know, whatever, right? Just, I, I, I just want to be out of trouble, and I'm just compensating by saying these magic words. I'm sorry doesn't cut it. I apologize does not cut it. Here's the, way, here's the way real sorrow comes across. I was wrong. I should not have done what I did. Married couples, implement that. Not I'm sorry, not I apologize. I was wrong. I should not have done what I did. All right. We call for divine clarity, we own our own wrongdoing, and we change our minds. Change our minds. There's a word for that in the biblical text. Do you know what that word is? Repentance. Repentance means change your mind. We're talking about altering our perspective about sin, removing the self-deception. God, I have convinced myself that this is not a big deal. Show me that this is a big deal. Show me how big of a deal this is to you. That's why viewing Christ on the cross is so important. Do you want to see your sin? There it is. You think that's a big deal? If you're watching Jesus get murdered in front of you, would you say your sin meant nothing? James 4, 7 talks about this godly transformation of mind. James 4, 7 through 10. So submit to the authority of God, resist the devil, stand firm in him, and he will flee from you. That is, Satan will flee from you. Come close to God with a contrite heart, and he will draw near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your unfaithful hearts, you double-minded people. Be miserable, grieve, and weep over your sin. Let your foolish laughter be turned to mourning, and your reckless joy be turned to gloom. Humble yourself with an attitude of repentance and insignificance in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. He will give you purpose. That's a changing of the mind. That's what it really looks like, godly sorrow over sin. We also change course, and then we feel good. Change course and feel good. That great theologian, Charlie Brown, has described what he calls good grief. Most of us don't think of grief as good, but grief can be very good. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul illustrates this to the church at Corinth. Remember, did Corinth have sin issues? Yeah, buddy, they did on our behalf so that many of us can learn many things about sin. Here's what Paul says to the church at Corinth. Yet I am glad now, not because you were hurt and made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. You changed your mind. 
and you turned back to God, for you felt a grief such as God meant for you to feel, so that you might not suffer loss in anything on our account, for godly sorrow, listen, godly sorrow, that which is in accord with the will of God, produces repentance without regret. Let's say that together. Repentance without regret. When you have sinned and you bring it before God and you have godly repentance and you say this sin is in the past and you move on past that sin, how much regret should you have? None. You press on toward the prize. Guilt that is not about present sin is put there by the adversary. If you have guilt over something you've already repented over that is deep in your past, the only person bringing that up is not the Holy Spirit. It is the adversary. Guilt should move us to repentance. Once repentance has already taken place, there's somebody else turning the screws. Repentance without regret leading to salvation. But listen to the contrast. Worldly sorrow, the hopeless sorrow of those who do not believe, produces death. In other words, there's a type of there's a type of grief that leads us to repentance, and that's good, and then we can let go of the past. And then there's a type of grief that constantly, I, I told the student, my old students this, imagine a corkscrew like on a Swiss Army knife. Imagine, imagine somebody just burrowing that into you and like pulling out plugs. That's what the adversary wants to do with guilt over sin that has already been compensated for, and he will continually run you back to your past going, that's who you really are, that's who you really are. Is that what Jesus said? If anyone is in Christ, there is now no condemnation. First John, uh, oh, I, I missed that text. That's okay. I guess it wasn't important. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, it is. We'll go back. Um, how many of you are sinners? How many of you fail, fall? Let's not show hands. Let's stand up. good. I don't have to call anybody out, because if anybody was still sitting, I was going to read 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 through 10. Listen to this passage. If we say we have no sin, we refuse to admit that we are sinners. We delude ourselves, and the truth is not in us. His word does not live in our hearts. If we freely admit that we have sinned and confess our sins, he is faithful and just and true to his own nature and promises and will forgive our sins and cleanse us continually from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, refusing to admit acts of sin, we make him out to be a liar by contradicting his word, by contradicting him, and his word is not in us. Aren't you glad you aren't sitting? But here's what I want you to do. I want you to look around the room right now. And I want you to see that young and old, male and female, uh, bedraggled, you know, people who look like me, <laughs> like the hobo who just put on some nice clothes, and those who look all put together, notice your elders are standing up, notice the teachers are standing up. There's a decision from the adversary that points to each person around you and says, they're perfect, but you're not. They're perfect. They've, they've got it all together, but if anybody knew the real you, they wouldn't want anything to do with you. Look around. This is a body of sinners. Go ahead and sit down, you sinners. We change our mind and engage and repentance, we change course and feel good. But what happens when the habit continues? What happens when I keep running back to that sin over and over again? There's a prescription for that. It's the church. James chapter 5, verse 16. If you get no other scripture passage from today, this is the one you need to remember because this will alter how you function in the kingdom of God. 
James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Confess your sins to one another. Not necessarily a priest. It's not necessarily in front of everybody, but it says confess your sins to one another. Confess your false steps, your offenses, and pray for one another that you may be healed and restored. Healed and restored, that you might be made well and that you might, might be put back on the right course and your sins might be absolved. The heartfelt and persistent prayer of a righteous man or believer can accomplish much when put into action and made effective by God. It is dynamic and can have tremendous power. Confessing to other believers. Here's where most of us just say no to God. I'm not going to talk to somebody else about my personal struggles. I don't want anybody to know what's going on behind the scenes. Let's talk about who you confess to first. This is important. When you confess to other believers, there's, there's a problem. See, it's easy for me to trust God with my sins. Amen? Because I know his character. I know God's character. I know God's pity. I know he looks at me and he has mercy on me. I know his patience. I know God's wisdom. I know God's understanding. I know his desire for me to change. But I don't have such confidence in you. And that's our fault as Christians for not doing what God told us to do. When you confess to someone, here's the person you're looking for to confess to. You don't just confess to anybody. First of all, you must confess to a disciple of the Christ if you're confessing to another believer. If you've got ongoing sin in your life, you need to confess to some other believer, only a disciple of the Christ. Why? I can't tell you how many times I've talked to people who are just wretched in their sins, and one of the things they tell me is, well, I thought that my non-Christian friends would understand better because they know what it is to engage in sin. And they're already living that life. So what I did is I went to them and I said, here's what I'm, was happening in my life. You did something bad. First of all, you disregarded what God said here, but secondarily, you told a non-believer that you're just like them in every way. And that person now looks at you and goes, I'm, I'm as good as any Christian who's out there. And they go, I'm going to be judged by the same, on the same merits of these guys at the end of time, but I'm, I'm not a hypocrite at least. So you did some disservice to God in that regard, but you did something else. Is a non-believer controlled by the Holy Spirit? which means they are subject to the will and whims of less benevolent spirits. Um, I had one guy who came up to me. He's having uh, problems in his marriage, and it was already over by this stage of the game. And I asked him what happened, and he said, I talked to a non-Christian friend about what was going wrong in my marriage, and he advised that uh, my wife and I watch explicit film together and, and involve ourselves in that. And wouldn't you know, the wheels fell off and the whole thing fell apart. How about that? Another guy was in the same condition, and he said that his non-Christian friends advised him to have an open marriage. Go date other people. That'll spice things up. No. It was a train wreck. And his life fell apart, and he had tons of heartache as a result of what transpired. Why? Because he took the adversary's advice. Don't go to a non-believer with your sin issues. Only go to a believer, but not just any believer. When you're confessing, you're going to a wise and seasoned disciple of the Christ. What do I mean by that? Somebody that has been practicing it for a while who knows the word. Every elder in this church should fit that paradigm. Um, there should be other leaders and teachers in this church that you look at and you go, that person is living it. 
That person knows the word. If I come to anybody who is a seasoned disciple of the Christ, they're not going to condemn me. They're going to look at me and go, well done. My favorite students I have ever had are the ones who showed up and went, I'm having trouble with this because that person can be healed. It's the people who never talk about sin until it's already well ingrained in their lives that we have problems with. Amen? So we don't go just to a disciple of the Christ, but we go to a disciple of the Christ who is well-seasoned, that knows their word, and has done things for a while. Thirdly, only one of the same gender. Um, it is the policy of the, the eldership and leadership of this church that we don't, we don't do counseling one-on-one with a member of the opposite sex. The church has gotten into trouble with that in the past. It's clear even in Paul's time, this had been an issue. Remember, he targets some people and he says, some of you prey on weak-willed women, you know, these weak-willed widows, and you're going to see them in their houses. That was a problem with leadership going and, and setting up a situation where people felt emotionally dependent on them and then taking advantage of it. When we spiritually counsel one another, there is, there's deep emotional connection, which is why it should be man to man, woman to woman. We don't cross those lines with one another. It's very easy to become emotionally attached, but here's the deal. Women can speak to women's issues better than men can. Can I hear an amen from the women? We don't understand one another's minds in the same way. We just don't. 1 Timothy 5 and Titus 2 talks about these issues in the church, that, that older men should be counseling older men and directing older men, older women with younger women. And that needs to be the policy in the church. Again, you who are spiritual, if you're a woman who has been about the, the service of Jesus Christ for many years, find ways that you can plug in and make yourself available to people to confess to you and talk to you. We call for clarity, we own our own wrongdoing, we change our minds, we change course. But sometimes it's not just right to confess to God, it's not just right to confess to other believers because we have sin issues. Sometimes our sin issue has not been just against God, but against someone else in the church. And so there's a third type of confession that is confessing to the victim. Confessing to the victim. If we've sinned against a brother or sister in Jesus Christ, we need to confess to that person. And this is terribly awkward, but eminently necessary. What happens to the church where people sin against one another and nobody ever says they did wrong? Division, isolation, separation, bitterness, resentment, all those things rise and propagate in such a church. Brothers and sisters, it must not be so. Repentance to an individual means you go to that person, and I would suggest one-on-one. Uh, I've seen this done in poor ways before, and we've got to think about how we do these things. Uh, I've seen it the case where, uh, for instance, I was in a, a youth group meeting one time where a girl began confessing that she ridiculed and made fun of a student who was in the room with us on a regular basis in his school. And he was mortified and flushed red to the ears. That's not how that should have happened. If she felt godly sorrow, she should have gone to him and said, I repent to you. It, it wasn't, wasn't to be a public confession. That was not helpful. Be shrewd. Be careful about how you engage in confession. In Christ, we have mandatory repentance when we hold something against somebody. Leave your, your gift on the altar. Go and fix it before you try to offer worship to God or anything to God, right? We have mandatory repentance. We also have mandatory forgiveness. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Remember, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Mandatory forgiveness, 
requests, mandatory forgiveness must be offered. That's the way the church is supposed to look. And what should be confessed? Here I want to just be very careful that you all understand this. Present sin issues are the things that you're going to want to confess to people. Present sin issues. There might be part of you that feels the need to trot out everything you've ever done wrong. I don't think that that's necessary. Um, For instance, if you have, again, if a sin is in your past, if it's something you repented of, it's like a corpse that is dead and buried, and it's gone. And Christ said that's no more. That's the way he assesses that situation. When you just keep dredging this up over and over again because you feel I have to do this in order to get rid of my guilt, it's like digging up a dead body to go, look who I used to be. I'm going to go put it back in the ground now. Next person, hey, look at this. This is a sin you need to know about. You don't have to keep doing that. Present sin issues. Ask yourself this. If if I'm going to confess this issue, how does this help me today to overcome my present difficulties? That's the accountability we want. That's what we want to take to other members of the church. Okay, let's talk about life without confession. Oh, my word, he's just now hitting point two. We'll get there. Not confessing sin has a cost. When we say no to God, it has a cost. It hurts us. It hurts the whole family of God. Let's talk about the toll of sin unconfessed individually. Here's what you get when you don't confess your sin in the way that God prescribed. And by this I mean confession to God and sometimes confession to humans and sometimes confession to the victim. We have ongoing guilt. If we confess our sins to God, we will be forgiven. The scriptures say that that's the case, amen? And we can know that that's the case. To confess them to others will help us affirm that forgiveness sometimes. It reminds us of our new status. But guilt does not need to be present. If you have been going through life with ongoing, ongoing, ongoing guilt, you're either listening to the adversary or you're failing to confess to other believers. It's one of those two things typically. There's also a cost in hidden sin. Who has a reputation? Just me. Do you have a reputation in the church? We all think we do, right? You think that people in the church view me in a certain way, right? Uh, and so when I've, I'm around those people, we tend to like deceive ourselves in this regard. We go, I can't let people think that I'm less than perfect because if they think that, then that's going to hinder their spiritual faith. That's going to that's mess them up. And so it's necessary for everybody else, and I convince myself, that it's necessary for everybody else that they all think I'm a perfect person because, I mean, after all, those people have their lives together. And this would really mess people up if they thought I struggled with sin. Remember what we just did a few moments ago? Is everybody standing up? Does it help anybody else to let them think that I don't struggle with sin? Is that really helping me? Francis Chan, uh, man, he's, he's one of those ministers I respect more than almost anyone else in this culture. He stands up in front of a congregation, a big conference of ministers, and he says, I'd like to start out by confessing sin to all of you. And so he starts trotting out all of his own sins. One of the things he said I thought was interesting, he says, I've lied for the sake of reputation. That's usually why we lie. I've lied for the sake of reputation. How often have you just let sin reign in your life because you're like, I've got to protect people from who I really am? Let me use an illustration to tell you why this is a dumb thing. Let's imagine that you go home today and you're walking through your house and you suddenly see like all this black mold like creeping up your walls. And you're like, what is this? And you look it up on Google and, uh, and as, you, as you study, you're like, whoa, this can kill people. This can cause like uh, permanent illness in people. 
And so you call in an expert, and the man comes to your house, and he begins looking over the mold, and he says, hey, you know what? You've identified that rightly. That is the mold that you thought it was. It's dangerous, and it's deadly, and I've got some concerns for you. Let me tell you what I'm concerned about, he says to you. What would your neighbors think? What would they think if they knew that you had mold like this? They wouldn't want to be around you. They'd probably ostracize you. What, what would your in-laws think? If they heard this and they knew that you were subjecting their family, your family, to mold, I mean, oh, they'd be so disappointed in you. And what about your wife and kids? Do they know yet? Maybe we should keep it that way. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to come in here and I'm going to build some walls in front of your walls. And we'll paint them the same color. Nobody ever needs to know. Have you been given sound advice? Would you look at that contractor and say, you are a liar, you are a deceiver, you're injuring me, you're injuring my family. Would you say that? Why would we then take the same advice from ourselves? Cover it up. Keep it in the dark. Nobody needs to know. How does mold do in a situation like that? Propagates, it grows out of control, and it gets worse and worse. Such is the way with sin unaddressed. Don't take the same advice from yourself. We also have disunity and isolation that results from unconfessed sin. Unconfessed sin keeps people at arm's length. And I put this little, this little plastic bubble around myself and I go, you don't want what I've got. And to be honest, I'm just trying to protect you from me and who I really am. And I don't know if you've ever been in a church that feels like that, but it's like you get together with this congregation and nobody seems to know anybody, and everybody kind of keeps everybody out. It's like you're a room full of strangers, collectively isolated from one another. Have you been in a congregation like that? If church has ever felt, felt that way to you, you might want to ask yourself, does anybody really know me here? The real me. Do I really know anyone here? And ask yourself what role confession has played or not played in that kind of communion. We don't just have disunity and isolation, but we have patterns of failure. We repeat the same stupid things over and over and over again. Hey, when you've been stupid, how do you fight that? Here's some good advice. How about fighting stupid with stupid? I can't get this right on my own, so here's what I'll do. I'll keep it to myself and clam up about it. And we take the sins that are present. We say, I'll talk about these once I've mastered them. And so sometime in the future, I'll have this down. And what we're doing is we're keeping the sins of the present forever in our present. How about letting the church deal with them with you? How about recognizing that you're paralyzed? You're the man on the mat and you need carried. There's a toll on the church body as well. We have lack of intimacy. We are collectively isolated. We separate ourselves, and you can feel it. You can feel it in the church. This is meant to be a place where somebody knows you. This gathering, there, you should look around the room, and there should be three or four people that you go, that person knows my innermost secrets. That person knows my darkest thoughts, and they still love me. They still care about me. They know how messy I am, and I know how messy they are. And we work together to clean up one another's messes because God said that he sought us out and chose us even in our messes. Amen? We don't want to have a culture of pretense. You might not realize this, but Jesus coined a term, hypocrite. 
As near as we can tell, before Jesus used the term hypocrite, it had only been used to describe an actor. And now we use the word as Jesus used it. He actually changed the way all of language works with that particular word. It was an actor. A hypocrite was an actor who holds masks up in front of their face. And Jesus used this in a scathing way with the Pharisees in his day. He said, look, this is who you are. You guys are these actors, and you just keep putting up masks in front of your face. You're pretending you're something you're not. You are like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you're all pretty and beautiful to behold, but inside are dead men's bones. And we're like, yeah, those idiot Pharisees, look at those guys. And we repeat the same mistakes ourselves. Sin goes unaddressed. Sin goes unaddressed in the church. And as it goes unaddressed, we watch one another fall apart. We watch one another's messes get more messy and more messy because we're not confessing as Christ called us to. We're not confessing to God the right way. We're not confessing to one another when we have ongoing sin. We're not confessing to victims when our sins have hurt people. I sometimes envision the church like a leper colony. Imagine this room right now, everybody's got leprosy. All right, you're familiar with leprosy. We've got you know, these patches of skin that are all infected. Parts of our body are falling off. So we've got, we've got leprosy, right? Everybody's got it. And I, I, I envision Jesus Christ in the center of the room. There he is, right there in the middle. And all of us get together, and we all work very hard to cover everything up as much as we can. And then we direct each other. You just need to seek out Jesus. You know, you, go see Jesus. Go see Jesus for your skin problems. And every one of us is in that condition where we're talking to other people about their sins, but most of us are not seeking him out ourselves. Guys, Christ has diagnosed us. We are hopelessly and helplessly sinful. We are engaged in a war with the flesh, and it's ongoing. It'll, we'll fight it till the day we die. And Jesus Christ is the cure. He's right in our midst. And the community is ongoing prevention and treatment and redirection to the cure. That's the way it's supposed to be if we make use of it. Let's close out by talking about the beauty of confession. You know what confession, or what it looks like when confession is not happening in your life. Amen? You know that God called us to confession. Let's talk about what confession looks like. Turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 32. David is a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he was sinless? Ha! Absolutely not. David was riddled with sin. It's his response to sin that makes him different. David talks about sin in his life, and I love that Rachel even pulled this in during the worship service. It's like the Holy Spirit was involved there. Psalm chapter 32, David is talking about what it's like to have sin unconfessed and then to confess that sin. Here's what he says, Psalm 32, let's look at verse 1. Blessed, that is fortunate, prosperous, favored by God, is he whose transgression is forgiven. And whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute wickedness, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through, though, through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand of displeasure was heavy on me. My energy, vitality, and strength was drained away with, uh, as with the burning heat of summer. Do you hear his description here even? Have you felt that guilt before, like of unconfessed sin, where it just feels, I mean, you feel it in your physical body, in your frame. Then he says this, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not hide my wickedness. I said, I will confess all my transgressions to the Lord, and you will forgive the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you for forgiveness in a time when you are near and may be found. 
Surely, when the great waters of trial and distressing times overflow, they will not reach the Spirit in him. You are my hiding place. When Adam sinned, he hid from God. When David sinned, he said, I'm hiding in you. You are my shelter. You are my defense. There is a difference between the two. Are you hiding from God or are you hiding in God? You are my hiding place. You, Lord, protect me from trouble. You surround me with songs and shouts of deliverance. Which would you rather have? Shelter from God's presence or glory in God's presence. Songs of deliverance. The confessing church has repentance. It has accountability. There should be people in this church who care about your spiritual health. Amen? Whose spiritual health do you care about in this congregation? Let them know. Let them know. You want somebody else in the church to keep you on track. Proverbs 27, verse 17 says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We in the church are made to make one another better. That's who we are. We are meant to have real friendships in the church, circles of intimacy, people we can go to with every problem. And, and I'm not saying the church would be divided along those lines. It's not, it's not a circle of separation like we've got cliques. Think of it more like chain mail. Do you know what chain mail is? It's a type of armor that has these little rings, but the rings aren't isolated. They all interlink with one another. And as they interlink with one another, they form a barricade from arrows and from sword blows. And that's what the church is meant to be, circles of intimacy. This should be a place full of love and compassion for one another in confession. That gives us real friendships, the kind of friendships that last into eternity. Do you have friends like that in this room? You should. Confession gives us a place where we are really known and loved. The adversary's primary power over you right now, the adversary's primary power over you comes from getting you to hide your real self and your struggles from those around you. That's his greatest control. Keep from speaking about it. Don't talk about it. Don't think about it. Pretend it's not there. Don't let anybody else know the real you. And all the while, he prevents the church from being the church. We also get a deeper knowledge of self when we have confession. There's something about saying it to somebody else that makes us confront it ourselves. We have wisdom from fellow believers. Don't you want fellow believers to pour into your life? We have defense against gossip. What are they going to say about me that I haven't said about myself already? We have the opportunity to extend mercy and forgiveness. Go back to Mark chapter 2. Go back to Mark 2. How did the faith of the men carrying the pallet bring about the forgiveness of another man's sins? We in the West have distorted Christianity to make it all an individual prospect. When we prayed the Lord's Prayer last week, what, what pronouns were we using? Our and we. Because the church is meant to be the church. This is a collective. And we are to bear one another's burdens. It's not just about me and God. It's about us and our Father. Amen? How is it that the faith of the many can result in the forgiveness of the one? What a beautiful depiction we have in this text. As we gather around people who seem helpless and hurt and carry them to the one who brings healing and forgiveness of sin. What a glorious thing the Lord has given us. God is pleased with the church that doesn't just carry its own, but the church that is willing to be carried. 
You're all fine probably helping somebody else, but are you willing to say, I'm the paralyzed person on the mat right now, I need help? God needs that to be the voice of the church. There's something special about the gathering, something spectacular. Max Lucado, um, I'll close out on this story. Max Lucado was discussing the issue of confession. And he talked about a man named Li Fuyan. Li Fuyan had a headache that was going on for four plus years. Uh, the man could not shake this headache, and he was having trouble breathing. The pain was so bad. Finally, he went to a doctor, and they took an x-ray of his head, and they found something astonishing. Li Fuyan had been mugged four years prior. And in the context of being mugged, he didn't realize it because he is left unconscious, but he had been stabbed under the jaw up into the brain, and the knife blade had broken off in his head. And so this man for four years had a rusty four-inch knife blade stuck in his brain. And he didn't understand what was going on. Lucado says this. He says, I wonder, I wonder what an x-ray of your soul would reveal. What's down there that we can't see? That you're not talking about that's causing you grief and heartache and difficulty, that has given you guilt for years that you've never talked to anybody about or that is an ongoing sin that you're just not talking about. What's there? I wonder what grief you're hanging on to. Guys, if sin has been forgiven, it doesn't belong there. No guilt belongs there. If sin is ongoing, you've got a fellowship of believers that are supposed to be dealing with that with you. They want to take you to the great physician who can remove whatever is in you. That's a foreign object. That doesn't belong there. Confession is God's plan for renewing, reviving, and integrating and causing love and compassion and depth within his church. Christ Fellowship at Little Miami, this is a community of confession. Let's go to our master in prayer. Our Lord, our hiding place. Remind us what we have when we have sin, that that's all part of the old nature that has been done away with, that has been buried. Help us to seek help from one another in the midst of those moments. Help us to confess wisely to you. God, I pray that this would be a community of confession and that the depth of our love for one another would be evidence of that. We praise you, O oh Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.